This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where star anthropologist Elizabeth Ferry, hello, Elizabeth, and me, not-so-star science fiction scholar John Plotz, invite scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So today we welcome Zach Horton, Associate Professor of Literature and Director of the Vibrant Media Lab at University of Pittsburgh. He is also, hold on to your hat, a game designer, a filmmaker, and a camera designer. So as much as I want to hear about that set of vocations, we did in fact invite him today to talk about his new book from University of Chicago Press, The Cosmic Zoom, Scale, Knowledge, and Mediation. Zach, hello, welcome. Thank you so much, happy to be here. Uh, Well, we're so happy to have you. Okay, so Zach, this dizzying book begins with a bravura description of a movie that I completely loved as a kid. I think I saw it at the Air and Space Museum, The Powers of Ten by Charles and Ray Ames. Uh, And and that you might remember, Elizabeth, you and I have talked about it before, actually, begins uh, with a view of two people enjoying a picnic, and then it zooms up and away to show their surroundings all the way up into space, and then it zooms back in for a close-up on the hand of the picnicker, ending up, as I remember it, at least at the atomic level. So, so Zach, your book uses the cosmic zoom as a starting point to develop a cross-disciplinary theory of and this is your phrase, scale as mediated difference. And um, there are reviewers who have loved the book, have put their figure on a couple of key questions. The question of scale, quote, as a matter of shape as well as size or quality as much as quantity. And also they have praised it as a theoretical insight into how humans might have handled difference, have handled differences in scale and might do so differently. So, so a normative dimension as well as a descriptive dimension. Um, and Zach, both of us have tons of questions of scale in our own work that we've grappled with. So it's exciting to come to them, um, you know, via your book. Um, and I have a whole aside here about naturalism and why I think naturalism is a problem of scale, but I'm I'm not gonna ask that rather are usually our first step um, when we invite someone in is to invite them to tell us about their book's key claims or its key discoveries, and then let the discussion flow from there. So um, may I hand over to you? Great. Sounds good. The biggest problems of the 21st century, right, um, which I would say are climate change, resource scarcity, the transformation of public and private life by algorithmic processes, um, and the rise of neo-fascist populism, right? I list those at least as some of the, the largest challenges of the of looming in the 21st century. 
they're all problems of scale, right? And uh, and the book argues that to solve any of these, let alone uh, the sort of dimensions between them, we need a high level of scale literacy. And then one of the, one of my key discoveries uh, when researching this book is that, in my opinion, at least, our scale literacy as a society is shockingly low. The reason we we tend to think that larger scale means more abstract is because, of course, we're so scale bound, which is to say we, we are so bound to certain perceptual scales of the human that when we try to when we try to contemplate or represent some way other scales, scales that diverge from the mesoscale of, of the human sensorium, we are we, we tend to do that through the human sensorium and we tend to have a hard time actually um, exiting our own scale. And so what we do is we schematically represent those right. other scales. And then, of course, they actually do take on the, the characteristic of abstraction uh, because we're we're mediating them in ways that that render them more abstract. But I think that this is mm -hmm. more, it, it's partly a technological limitation, but it's more so, I mean, we have amazing technology for resolving other scales. It's more of a, a, a conceptual limitation, I right. think. Right, that we're yeah. so used to thinking of um, that the large scale, for instance, as as you know, something you might conceptually at least jot on on graph paper, right? Or you 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 mark out this sort of large these abstract processes. Um, but of course, our meso scale is equally process based, and and larger and smaller scales are equally detailed and concrete if we only if we only approach them that way. One thread that runs through your book, and I have it formulated in a couple of different ways, but I think because I'm an English professor, I'll put it in terms of epistemology versus ontology, like the question of scale as a thing that we do, like we apply, you know, an X where one inch equals whatever is, is the one factor. That's, that's scale as an epistemological human operation versus scale as well, I guess absolute is the wrong word, but kind of encoded in the universe in maybe the way that size is as a property. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you're not looking to solve that problem. You're trying to describe what it means that both of those are germane um, paradigms for scale. So can you say more about that? Absolutely. Yes, this is a this is actually really important. This is one of the fundamental arguments in the book um, and, and actually something I think is really important for having a robust understanding of what scale is. And I came to this through the, you know, through the years of research, I came to realize that in, in most discourses, you, the, the, this, this concept of scales collapse in one direction or the other in most of our discourse, right? We either believe that scale is, is purely a human construct. And this tends to be the case in, in the humanities, for instance, right? Um, we tend to think of scale as a pure construct. Um, because obviously any scale, it, you know, is defined by rhetorical practices, right? Discursively right. defined. So we know that, well, if you have a, let's say a domestic scale, we define that domestic scale, right? We've created this idea of a, of whatever, a household and certain relationships that fall within and, right? We've defined what falls within and, and what falls without um, and, and thereby created a milieu. Um, uh, boundaries for a million. So in, in some ways that seems obviously true um, and that and leads many humanists to, to feel that scale itself is, is purely, you know, I mean, it, it may or may not be useful as a concept, but it's certainly constructed by humans. 
On the other hand, in the, uh, in the natural sciences, for instance, scale is not a, uh, a construct. In fact, scale has been a uh, scalar difference, uh, which is to say that processes have different rules of behavior, um, act differently, um, present themselves differently ontologically at different scales has been one of the fundamental advances in physics in the last 100, 120 mm -hmm. years. Basically, right, the, the quantum mechanical revolution was all about these discoveries, like these discoveries that scale matters. Um, and the, the old um, clockwork universe of Isaac Newton um, is wrong, fundamentally wrong. Like plant the, the you know, the anecdotal like apple uh, dropping from a tree and the planets moving in the in the in space do or don't act the same way, right? The, all scales do not have the same rules um, for physical behavior, um, and in fact, they have radically different rules. And we know that in other domains like quantum mechanics, we it's what we know versus what we actually incorporate in our per perception and experience is a court there's they're at odds right and so we we still treat the world as if it's newtonian <laughs> even though we know that it isn't and so in some ways we have a lot to learn about scalar difference um, that we haven't yet you know assimilated into our knowledge practices so this question that you asked john between the 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 um epistemology versus ontology um you know where you fall disciplinarily tends to Tends to determine where you how you answer that question, and I I really felt strongly as I as I looked at both sides of this that it's a mistake to collapse to either side because both have to be true. I like the point you make about sort of the um I don't know the the indexicality of science or the necessity of attending to sort of a reality of a world out there. But can I sort of flip the question around and and ask about the historicity of the mesoscale as the normative scale by which we make sense of the universe? And I guess by that, I sort of mean in the era of the Anthropocene, like that is in an era where we've seen human beings fucking everything up for, for every species, I guess. It, the the anthropocentrism of the last few hundred years sort of comes to the fore. That is like man is the measure of all things as a paradigm, one of the paradigms that we use to understand modernity. So I guess it's just a question for you, it, whether you think historically about that mesoscale. Like that is, does it seem just like innately human that humans would be the ground and the kind of zero unit for scaling? Or is it more specifically something that I don't know. I don't want to point the finger at Descartes or anybody in particular, but is it particular to the last few hundred years of enlightenment thinking that humans get that priority and scaling? Okay, I guess my answer would be that if we absolutely can point the finger at Descartes and, okay. <laughs> and other other uh, other enlightenment thinkers for at least making the problem worse. I won't say that that that, that that's its origin. Um, I mean, certainly, we we carry around media with us, right? Innately, biologically, we have we have particular ocular um, properties in our op in our eyes and optic nerves, and we we have certain senses. And of course, different species have different senses, and their sense of scale is different accordingly. But you kind of have to start somewhere, and so I do think it's natural. There is a kind of innate 
need to start with with some kind of base scale, right? Some kind of mesoscale for for the perceiving apparatus, whether it's biological or technological. So I I, I guess we can be, we can be a little generous in 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 that regard that you have to start somewhere if you're going to perceive scale. Um, um, but then there needs to be a medial process, um, and that medial process can take many different forms. And you can, and of course, it can take many negative, or what I would think of as negative forms of mastery, of of domination, et cetera, right? And and humanity's been has a pretty poor track record of using its transscalar uh, techniques, uh, not not necessarily in generative ways. Um, but I do think it's much worse becomes much worse with with European Enlightenment thinking, right? That with that tradition, you do suddenly have um, a more explicit concept of, uh, as you said, man is the measure of, of all things. It's so interesting because I was also thinking while I was reading about time scales, right? Um, and one that comes to mind is that one of the clock, the sort of geological time clock, where humans like start at like 1158. Um, that seems to be doing the opposite in the sense that it's rendering human scale as minuscule. That's right. I mean, I agree with that, but but I would also say that, you know, there, there's, it's like the scale is the sword of Damocles and it, it definitely, um, it, it's, it's all like you, you've got this idea that, that the, um, you know, oh, well, human, human, Time frames are so short and compared to the history of the universe, or 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 human existence on Earth is so small spatially in relation to the universe. And I think these are, I mean, these are generative, these are important discoveries, but they're not new, they're also not new discoveries. Um, you have um, you know, in um in Cicero, for instance, I talk about this a little bit in the book, the the dream of Scipio. Um, and this is a, a, a passage in um, De Republica from you know 50 BC, somewhere around there. Um, which is all about this vision. It's a dream vision of of, um, uh, of floating off the earth and entering into the cosmos and realizing that every all of human activity is actually so minuscule in relation to the larger cosmos and larger time span. And in fact, uh, the the Roman Empire seemingly you know, almost global, kind of covering the known world, seemingly so large and so important and so historic, you know, everything is is actually totally insignificant when viewed from a different scalar perspective, right? Okay, I, I, I see that. I think I might say that with the development of geology as a discipline, the sort of intensity of that point of view is definitely takes off. So in the same way in which you might say that, okay, um, there's the sort of mesoscale for a long time, and there's a certain kind of bodily reality to that or something, but the enlightenment intensifies it or amplifies it or, or um, activates it. Geology, in some ways, is, is one of the central scale animating uh, knowledge disciplines of our time. Right, and has been actually for at least since the 19th century, and and you know before that geology, these long time frames were um, you know thought of as cyclical um, in um, Hattonian geology, uh, for instance, and um, and you could have large scales, but things didn't change ultimately, 
right? And so I, I think there is an, an extra component um, that modern geology uh, produces, which is a linearity, which is to say that, that no, things don't always return, things don't always um, equalize, right? And that's really important, of course, to understanding the Anthropocene, which is, uh, which is um, really about an out of a process that, that exponentially scales Right, and, and you have to understand tipping points and um, uh, the idea that, that, that the future won't look anything like the past. Um, and I think that, that, is a very, that, is, that is a very modern concept. Um, and I agree with you that a lot of that comes from geology. So this is a, a totally fascinating discussion, partly because I think we're talking about the the like immediate consequences of shifting paradigms, but also the kind of unintended ramifying consequences of them as well. So the capacity to visualize things differently, Elizabeth, in the example you give of geology, but then the capacity also for science to act as a sort of technological tool of the human to have an impact that actually collapses scales rather than extending them, like rather than giving a vision of the um, sort of infinite extension of scale in either direction, the notion of natural resources is like, basically, how do we make millions of years of like organic life on earth into a reservoir for fossil capitalism, as people sometimes call it. Um, so, so I think that that sort of continuing in that spirit of doubleness, I guess I have a question, how do we think about the era of scientific thinking in terms of putting the culture face to face with a vast distended scale when we compare it to like earlier theological or philosophical texts that also ask you to entertain the problem of vast difference. So like, I really loved your point, Zach, about Calvino being a great scalar storyteller. Um, I totally agree. I teach cosmic comics for exactly that reason, but it made me think, well, isn't the Bible scalar storytelling as well? You know, it's not just consider Leviathan. It's like, you know, coming to grasp, coming to grasp your own puniness compared to these distended magnitudes of something else. And, and I guess, in a way, so question, the question is that does that does that fit into your account of the scalar, or would you say, oh no, that's not scale? Like we needed science before we could think about things scalarly. What you're just talking, what you're talking about, is something else instead. Great, a great question. I, I, I would emphasize the the um, the long history of scalar thinking. Um, so I would I would agree with you, and I don't I don't think we need modern science to start talking about scale. I think modern science inflects ontology a little differently. And that has, has really important resonances and really important implications for how we think about the cosmos and the cosmos as scaled and having scalar articulations or joints in certain ways. Um, but it definitely does not herald the beginning of scalar thinking. Um, that that greatly predates it. And, and indeed, I, I would say that, yeah, sure, the Bible is a scalar, is, is a scalar text. Um, most definitely, and, and it's making you know it's making arguments about not only the nature of reality um, and what what the nature of the cosmos, but relational arguments about what what you know prescriptive arguments about what our as hu humans what our relationship to those other scales should be right. I mean, it's you know it's really if you were to diagram the sort of scales of the Bible, you you know you have um, these different. Um, 
uh, heavenly and hellish domains, right? And 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 there's this, and then there's a, the earthly domain, and and what's the scale of God, right? I mean, that's actually kind of a, an open or ongoing question throughout the Bible, right? Yeah. Is God a um, similar to a human scale, right? Is God a being with emotions and that you interact with, or is God the universe? Right. And so that's actually, I mean, and, and of course, the different authors of the Bible don't necessarily agree um, on the answer to that question. So it, it becomes a kind of interesting ongoing question, not only in the Bible, but of course, throughout the Middle Ages and, uh, uh, you know, um, the theology, you know, theology throughout those throughout the era. So um, it's a it's a great question. I mean, we, we've been grappling with these questions for a long time. And I guess one thing we could say is, A, we have come up with different answers um, over time um, in terms of the nature of different scales. But but I would also, I would, you know, then the next question or the meta question is, have we also changed our notion of scale itself? Or are we just characterizing particular scales in different ways? Um, I, I'm not sure that that our concept of scale has radically changed. I think that we've done more, we've done more work with scale, which is to say we've stabilized more scales we put them into greater conversations and um I, I don't it's not just a question of of disciplinary knowledge it's also a question of technology because te technological advances have given us access to or, or we've given us the, the the ability to resolve um many more scales than we than we used to be able to do and so there's, there is a conceptual question of how we stabilize scales, but that often maps onto or there is in dialogue with how the, our means of technologically stabilizing certain scales. And, you know, the invention of the microscope is so monumental in the history of scalar thinking, because all of a sudden, um, it's not that it, it invents the micro scale. We had conceptions of hormunculi and, you know, and angels and all sorts of things that existed at that scale conceptually for us. But now we could actually resolve technologically new entities. And that's an example of a, of a scale being stabilized culturally in order to then enable um, discovery, encounter, what I call transcalar encounters, right? And, yeah. and suddenly these little creatures appear and, and it blows our minds. It changes our conception of the cosmos because all these little things we didn't know existed now pop, pop into existence. We yeah. discovered that they did. I, you remind me that there's a golden age story. I don't think it's by Arthur C. Clarke. Maybe it's by like Shockley or something in which they discover, you know, they create a better electron microscope that goes three, you know, three orders of magnitude closer. And they look at a pin and they see a whole bunch of angels dancing on the top of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, in some ways, the the the, the subatomic level, you know, quarks, um, they're, they're amazing entities. They are angelic like entities. They're as, at least they're as weird as angels, right? I mean, orcs are almost inconceivable. And, and, you know, you mentioned the, the, uh, powers of 10, this amazing film, which actually anchors the kind of middle of my book, right? I kind of work up to things that preceded that and then things that succeeded it. Um, and it stands as this monumental influence on scalar thinking. Um, and in, in many ways, I, I, I sort of break it down and have many problems with it. But I too, when I was a, I, I first discovered that film when I was a kid, uh, and it was playing at a science museum and, and it, it was mesmerizing. 
And it's partly the mesmerization that I that I decided to sort of deconstruct in the book, right? And think about, well, wait a minute, what what's the sort of political argument? What's the sort of um, uh, ideological argument the film's making, and why does it give us one sense aesthetically, and 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 actually a different sense um, concept, conceptually, right? So that was one of my 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 questions. But one um, which I can jump back to, but the the in in the making of that film, one of the things I discovered through archival research, uh, you know, is that the, there were huge ideological battles going on between the, the filmmakers, you know, within the team. And that's one of the sort of fascinating things is you see scalar politics and scalar conceptions play out in the production of any uh, explicitly scalar media, um, which is why Cosmic Zooms are so fascinating if you sort of dig down and and, and tease them apart, the, the, the sort of... Um, Things that have to be collapsed in order to produce something like a smooth zoom, um, and in that case, uh, there was a big argument about quarks, um, and um, some members of the team wanted to depict quarks, and some members thought, "Well, I, quarks are weird, and and I don't really like quarks. Like, do they really exist?" And and in the in the mid to late seventies, quarks were a fairly new discovery, um, so maybe there was still a little bit of uh, of you know, a uh, place to try to claim they might not exist. Um, so it's funny how those kind of politics play out, right? Some members of the team thought atoms were really the scale central. That's the most important scale in the universe is the, at the atomic. And so we should construct the film to demonstrate that. And other people thought, no, the human is is still the most, is the most important scale. So we should we should construct the film to suit that. And then, you know, and then the question of quarks sort of, you know, well, but isn't that the smallest scale we know of? Shouldn't we depict that entity? But how do you depict a quark? Um, because quarks are so weird, uh, right? They're not really particles. Um, and they're, they're, they're sort of, so, so how, do you, how do you even conceptualize and understand a quark? Would it doesn't, it's only one third of a part. Anyway, so um, in the end, the film's a little bit of a muddle. And if you really, you know, you really look at it closely, you realize, well, there's parts of this that are really pulling in the direction of atoms. There's other parts that visually don't map map onto the narration, for instance, and are are really uh, visually the human is the center of the film, even though narratively um, the atom is the center. And quarks get this kind of weird half treatment. Um, so you know, the, it's not neutral. This question of, of of which of these scales is important or salient mm -hmm. to us, right? It's actually political. Uh, all scalar media is is also is is political, just like all politics is scalar. In the 50s, in the early 1950s, um, Kiss, Kiss took this idea. Um, he wanted to explore this concept of, of scale in the cosmos and understanding the relationship between human perception and scale and, and um, sociocracy, uh, this political idea of this consensus based in some ways based on that kind of Quaker model, um, right? And the idea of sociocracy was that that um, yes, you could have a consensus, a, a representative consensus-based government. So it would be representative, different, you'd have different governing bodies that would elect through consensus a, um, a representative, and then those representatives would come together. Um, yeah, so it's not, it's not a, 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 a direct consensus, right? It's representative consensus, but um, you would then have a, um, those bodies would come together of representatives and they would have to reach a consensus to make any decision. And when they did it, then they would send representatives to larger. And the, what's, what's interesting about this particular um, political uh, 
structure is that it's meant to scale. It could scale. It can scale infinitely, right? It, it you you and it and it relates both up and down. It goes up and down the scalar ladder, um, uh, both directions, so that you have very very local politics, very local political um, entities uh, that are consensus based. But then you have these regional ones, and then you have these you know um, larger regions. And you and it actually is meant to culminate in a global uh, council. Um, that then is answerable to all the lower levels, right? So uh, it, it's really re kind of remarkable in that it's thinking about some, and, and, and this of course comes out of World War II and it comes out of a desire to prevent the, this kind of global conflict that had, had just transpired, right? Um, but Cass realized that, that for this to work, you can't just create this structure, that for this political structure to work, you have to have a cultural structure that is highly scale literate, right? You actually have to have people who know how to think at different scales, who, who can conceptualize the entire world at the same time that they can conceptualize the, the, the dynamics of the, of the direct local. So the politics requires a culture that doesn't yet exist. And that's what, toward the end of, of Beatrice and Kiss's lives, they started to, they realized that the project should shift and that instead of politics, with a with a capital P, they, they they there's a groundwork needed to be laid for this, and they started to wonder what kind of cultural groundwork could be laid for a, a scale aware politics, um, and and as they thought about it, Kess in particular had this idea of of trying to think of um, forms of media that would help people understand that would articulate scales together at the same time that it represented scalar difference at the different levels. And this is a this is a tricky thing, and this is of course what I this is what I advocate for as well in the book, right? Is how can we create cultural forms and political forms, um, and aesthetic forms that do both, that that articulate scales together in relation to each other without collapsing the difference between the scales, so that we we actually approach scale through difference rather than through homogeneity, um, and yet. Don't just focus on the local, right? Uh, to go back to something you asked earlier, Elizabeth, right? That 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 we need to we need to be able to think the global. We need to be able to think larger than the global. We need to be able to think the cosmic, but we also need to be able to think the microscopic. Um, and the problem has has always been that when we switch scales, we find a way to represent a different scale. We end up collapsing the other scales into that, or the new scale we collapse into the dynamics of a of a previous base scale. And this is so widespread. We just do this constantly almost in, in most of our you know transcalar encounters so how can we the, my, the problem I, I that I'm trying to articulate is very similar to that one that the that that Boca articulated in the, in the mid 50s um, and his answer was to create this book at least as a starting point as a starting point he created this book called cosmic view and each page shows a different you know, image of centered on the same thing, which is the school, the courtyard of the school, the, the um, Berkplatz. And um, and then and it zooms out and then uh, zooms in. But zoom is not quite the right word because what it does is as you, as you turn each page, um, it jumps. Um, and, it, and the subtitle of the book is uh, is 40 jumps. Um, uh, blanking on the full subtitle, but anyway, it's about, it's about jumps and not zooms. Uh, which is interesting um, and important because it's articulating the difference, and it really takes in the text it 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 takes pains to articulate the difference between each one of these scales 
um, at the same time that they are related, right? And things that you can't see at one scale but are present on some level then become resolved at a later scale or things that were resolved at an earlier scale disappear or, or their, their larger context is revealed at later scales. Um, the, the sort of interplay is very sophisticated. And the reason is that this isn't just an aesthetic experiment. There's an entire sort of politics of the future at stake here, right? So this book is really important and, and very carefully crafted over many years. Um, and, uh, and then that does indeed become a, an animated film called Cosmic View in the 60s. Um, in the late 60s, this book gets picked up um, by a number of people and suddenly becomes rediscovered and seems really important. And what's one of the groups is the, the uh, Ray and Charles Eames who create um, this film called Rough Sketch, uh, which is which is um, a nominally a, a, an adaptation of that book, um, but becomes this huge contentious endeavor, and they collapse a lot of the, 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 the differences uh, of the book. And then that gets refined into the famous film by them in the 70s, uh, Powers of Ten. This is a great moment to return to uh, recall this book tradition, which is we... Uh, each name a book or some other object potentially that uh, might pertain to the conversation we had today. Um, so Zach, do you have do you have a recallable book for us? Sure. I mean, first I would recommend to anyone Cosmic View, the book we just talked about. So I, that's kind of a cheat. So I'll give you another one as well. But that that book, Cosmic View by Kiss Booka, is it's out of print. Um, but it, it was popular at various times in history, and it's readily available. And so I, 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 I can't, I, I think it's such a, an amazing book, such an amazing project that gets turned into some other, you know, it gets remediated later in different ways that I think that I find less generative, even though they've been highly influential. Um, so going back to that book, I think is a completely worthwhile in, endeavor. Stuart Brand reviewed it in the, in, I think the 1969 um, Polar Earth Catalog and called it, you know, a, a mind blow um, and suggested that this is the sort of one of the essential books that one has to read to sort of understand the cosmos. Um, that I think was part of, part, you know, part of its in that rediscovery process. But Can I just say, I'm really glad you mentioned Stuart Brand because I was trying to slip in a reference to Vince Brown's new film about the blue marble photograph in which I discovered for the first time, maybe other people knew this, that Stuart Brandt is more or less responsible um, for convincing NASA to set up the situation in which taking that, you know, blue marble photograph of Earth seen from space seemed like the logical way to bring awareness of the Earth as a, right. you know, at pixel scale. So right. He, he started this, connection. this whole campaign in 1965 yeah. um, and with buttons that he would pass out yeah. to employees of NASA, why haven't we seen a picture of the whole Earth yet? Yeah. Um, and and right, that actually pushed NASA to be thinking less in, you know, to, to think, to do something other than just science-based, right? Instead of just the scientific questions, that it got them to think a little bit culturally about how significant, rep, you know, representation at those scales might be. And of course, Brand was was right. But yeah. um, so, so anyway, uh, the other recallable book, I, the, the far more obscure one, uh, even more obscure, I should say, uh, than Cosmic View, is I, I, I'll go with Micromegas, uh, which is uh, a novella by Voltaire, right? So it's from the mid-18th century. Um, I, 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 I think I only briefly discussed it in the book, and maybe I'm even confusing, and I discussed it in some other article that isn't in the book. 
But um, uh, Micromegas is is one of these kind of proto science fiction stories. Uh, it's about two enormous beings. There are you know hundreds of thousands of miles large <laughs> from another planet, and they're going on a kind of tour through the through the universe. And uh, and at some point they end up on on Earth visiting Earth, and they're so large that when they walk across the earth and they only get like knee deep into the oceans, you know, that's, that's, that's how large they are. And it's, it's a really hilarious um, and, and fun, fun book because it's, it's about the, the encounter of the earth from this radically different perspective, which is exactly what scalar transcalar thinking should be. Um, and it's amazing actually that we, we get this in this, in the era in which the, the centrality of the human is being shored up by, by so many other thinkers. Um, and, um, and so, you know, uh, Voltaire uses this to skewer human pretensions of being, you know, central or, or vastly important in the grand scheme of things. And these, these two big creatures um, at first think the earth is devoid of life. There's just no life on this planet. They don't see, they can't resolve anything. And this fundamental aspect of resolution that I talk about so much in the book is, is really important in this, in this story. Um, and finally, they, stop, they, they think they see a little speck of something and they look at it really closely and it's a whale. It's like, you know, the largest species on the planet. They, and they see it as this tiny little speck. And then they get out and they create like a, a makeshift magnifying glass. And finally they see a boat containing little specks that are humans. And they can't communicate at first. They have to create these kind of technological apparatuses to somehow translate sound um, between different scales. And they finally find a way late in the book <laughs> to communicate with these these little humans, which they think can't possibly be intelligent because they're too small to be intelligent, right? Um, but it turns out they find that the humans do have some, some, you know, at least rudimentary intelligence, and they converse, and the humans explain their loftiest philosophies to these creatures, and the creatures, you know, laugh, laugh at them, you know, and oh, oh, so the the cosmos was created for humans, and that's so funny that they like upset the whole earth by laughing so hard. So Zach, you've made me reformulate. I was actually going to recommend um, Shishen Liu's three-body problem because he talks about the problem of scale at the end as the problem that defines science fiction. But actually, Micromegas really makes me think of this Mark Twain piece, which was unpublished in his lifetime, called 3,000 Years Among the Microbes. So you're nodding your head, so you probably know it. But it's a just, I think the subtitle is the the anecdote of a microbe found in the ear of the tramp Blowitzky. Um, and it's, you know, it, but it's, you know, it's just a sort of, um, it's a bit of a squib. I mean, it's not, it, it's probably shorter than Micromegas, but it's, uh, but it, the, the notion of it is that no matter at what scale your society may be, and this is a microbe sized scale, it has the same set of idiotic wars and problems with monarchy, problems with the distribution of power if monarchy is overthrown. And uh, it, it really fits into the the idea that I floated early, but never really got to, which is that naturalism is fascinated with the problem of scale, because the idea is, um, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss, like whatever size you're operating at, there's a perdurable logic of the universe that is going to be the same regardless. And, and I really appreciate Zach. One thing I really like about your book is, is um, challenging that notion of scalability, which I think for naturalism becomes a kind of um, operative logic that you can show the sort of ironclad law of how every narrative will unfold, whether it be a microbe narrative or a human narrative, but the twain 
the Twain version of that, the 3000 years among the microbes is, um, I don't know, it's funny naturalism. People don't believe that there's such a thing as funny naturalism, but that that that's actually, it's the, it's the comic iteration of wherever you go, it's going to be the same damn uh, uh, corner in pork, is what Twain calls it. Um, all right. Uh, fantastic. Well, with that, um, we should say, Zach, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to beam in. Thank, um, thank you. This is this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Both. Yeah, Thanks. totally. And um, if you enjoyed this conversation, dear listeners, we uh, encourage you to check out uh, the Recall This Book archives at our website. Thank you all for listening and hope to talk with you again soon. Recall This Book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.